Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Today we are shifting gears from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from Hebrew manuscripts to Greek ones. We'll begin with the earliest evidence for the Greek New Testament, the papyri. Made from the papyrus plant, approximately 130 of these manuscripts survive today in museums around the world. In this lecture, you'll learn the important role collectors like Chester Beatty and Martin Bodmer played, as well as the earth-shattering discovery made by archaeologists Bernard Grenfell and Arthur Hunt at Oxyrhynchus, Egypt. Uh, this is going to be just such a blast going through this material together, looking at these stories of discovery and adventure that happened over the last couple hundred years that give us the oldest witnesses to our New Testament. Here now is episode 335, our Bible class, part six, Greek New Testament papyri. We've now spent five lectures looking at the text of the Old Testament. And this is really an important part of the Bible. It's like, what, 70% of our Bible? So we, I thought it was important to spend five lectures looking at the text and how we compare those texts to each other and also Jewish translations. Now we're transitioning to look at the New Testament. And this is all part of the first part of how we got the Bible, which is the text itself and the transmission of the text. And then we're going to look at translation in the second part of this class. When it comes to Greek New Testament manuscripts, we have five types of manuscripts. First, we have the papyri. Then we have the uncials. Then minuscules. Then lectionaries. And then, last of all, the church fathers. The papyri are written on papyrus. Papyri is just plural. We don't say papyruses. We say papyri. And all the rest of these are mostly written on parchments. The papyrus is a reed plant that grows in marshlands. And around the Nile River, there are lots of marshlands where this papyrus plant grows. And it can grow very tall, you know, 10, 15 feet tall. And it has a really stiff uh, stem to it that uh, they can cut off the, the outer green part and then slice open the white part in, inside of it into strips and then roll them out and then press them together in horizontal and vertical uh, shape so that you get a rectangle. And then they press that down for multiple days and finally dry it in the sun and psh, you've got the ancient equivalent of paper. Uh, here's a little quote that explains how this all works. This is from Bruce Metzger. He writes, to make a sheet of papyrus, these slices were placed vertically side by side on a hard wooden plank or table with their edges slightly overlapping. On the first layer, another was put horizontally with the slices running at right angles to the slices of the first layer. By pressing and beating, the two layers became one sheet, the plant's natural juice gluing the layers firmly together. The sheet thus made was dried under pressure. Lastly, the surface was polished with some rounded object, possibly of stone, until it became perfectly smooth. The borders were then cut in order to make them straight and to give the sheet a rectangular shape. Here is a quote from Philip Comfort in his book, Encountering the Manuscripts. He writes, Generally speaking, the papyrus manuscripts are among the most important witnesses for reconstructing the original text of the New Testament. It is not the material they are written on, papyrus, that makes them so valuable, but rather the date when they were written. Several of the most significant papyri are dated from the 2nd and 3rd 
centuries. These manuscripts therefore provide the earliest direct witness to the autographs. Now you remember that word autographs there is what they originally wrote is the autograph and then you have copies of the autograph that go on from there. So here's an outline of what I'd like to cover with you today. One, the Chester Beattie collection. Two, the Martin Bodmer collection. Three, the Oxyrhynchus collection. And last of all, I want to look at another significant papyrus in particular. All right, so first up we have Chester Beattie. He's a New Yorker. He's part Irish. I'm a New Yorker. I'm part Irish. Actually, after that, we might part ways. Uh, but anyhow, he was raised in New York City. He went to college to learn how to be a miner, late 1800s and early 1900s. And then he went west to work. And he started out at the bottom and worked his way up. And they were mining gold and other precious metals out west. And so he has all this money, and he's only 33 years old. And he, he moves to New York City, and he starts an office there. And uh, then his wife died of typhoid, and that just really destroyed him and he moved to London and uh, he eventually got remarried in London and he married this woman named Edith Dunn. Now he had silicosis which is a condition you get in your lungs from mining from being exposed to a lot of dust and so he could not handle the winter in London so he and his family would winter every year in Egypt and while he's there in Egypt in the hot sun what's he doing? He's collecting papyrus and uh, he's making deals and he has a different informants and researchers, people that he depends on to find authentic papyri that he can purchase. And uh, so that's what he spends a lot of his time doing. In 1931, he purchased some manuscripts from a dealer in Egypt and also the University of Michigan purchased some from the same lot. So he got P45, P46, and P47, these are later names for these manuscripts than the Chester Beattie collection. Their discovery was so significant because these were from such an earlier time, from the year 200, or from the second century, or from the early third century. It, their discovery just like shocked the world of Bible translation such that the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, basically one of their main reasons for doing a revised Standard Version was we had new manuscripts of the New Testament that's older than anything else we've ever had, so we need, we need to update our Bibles. So they started that project in 1936, the RSV, and they finished the New Testament in 1946, and then the whole Bible in 1952. Really a significant find as we read here in this quotation. The library of Sir A. Chester Beatty has been famous since the early 1930s for the Chester Beatty Biblical Papyri, a dozen early Greek papyri that were the sensational biblical discovery of that generation. For the Chester Beatty biblical papyri, P45, P46, P47, which contain Gospel and Acts, Pauline Epistles, the Book of Revelation, trace the text of the New Testament back behind the great 4th century unsealed manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. We're going to talk about Sinaiticus and Vaticanus later, okay? Which had seemed a century ago to be as far back as one could reasonably hope to go. For P45 to 47, went back to the 3rd century behind the Diocletianic persecutions, which included in the imperial decree Triditium Codicum, the turning in of Christian books for destruction. One had hardly dared to hope to recover biblical manuscripts older than this book-burning holocaust. So what he's talking about there, and this is a quote from James Robinson's book, The Story of the Bomer Papyri, the emperor in the early 4th century persecuted Christianity for about 10 years, 303 to 313, 
And part of that persecution involved collecting and burning as many New Testament scriptures as possible. So basically saying like nobody was even thinking there was anything from before the 300s because this Holocaust of book burning occurred under the full governmental authority of the emperor with all these different, and for 10 years, nothing could have survived that. And then Chester Beatty was able to find these papyri and secure them and also make them available to the world. He didn't hide them away. He published the contents so that other people could benefit from them as well. So this was really a landmark discovery in the early 20th century. And uh, so let's talk a little bit more about Beatty. Beatty spent decades traveling the world, purchasing rare books and artifacts. He ended up becoming a British citizen in 1933 and uh, contributed a lot during World War II in England to the raw materials they needed for different things. But he got disillusioned with some of the changes in the society and some of the issues with taxes and uh, restrictions on him importing things. So he ended up moving to Ireland in 1950 became an honorary citizen of Ireland in 1957 and founded what's called the Chester Beatty Library in a suburb of Dublin, Ireland. And so when he died, he donated his massive collection to the country of Ireland. So if you want to see these manuscripts, P45, 46, 47, guess where you got to go? You got to go to Dublin. Uh, it used to be in a suburb, but in 2000 they moved it into Dublin Castle to a nice new facility. It's open to this day. There's no charge for admission. You can go right in. You can look at these Chester Beatty papyri, along with all the other stuff that he collected. Like I said, he was a collector. I mean, there are hundreds of artifacts you can look at in this museum or library to this day. All right, on to our next category is Martin Bodmer. Martin Bodmer lived from 1899 to 1971. He grew up in a wealthy family in Zurich, Switzerland, and had started collecting rare books at the age of 16. What were you doing at the age of 16? Collecting rare books? Probably not. But he was, and he had the money to do it. And then his dad died when he was only 17 years old and left them just left him a massive fortune. So he was essentially an independent person from then on, and he spent his whole life collecting. There's TV shows about this, right? Some people spend their whole lives collecting and they just end up with a room or a house just full of junk. Bodmer's not that guy. Bodmer is the kind of guy that's collecting really valuable stuff and ends up with a museum in his honor at his death. So uh, really an all-star collector. And he had, the, like I said, the time and the money to do it, which is significant. By 1939, when he was 40 years old, which is how old I am, 40 years old, his library of world literature had 60,000 volumes. Now, I know some of you have, have been looking at these books behind me in this class thinking, Sean, you are such an ostentatious uh, book collector having all these books. Well, let me tell you something. I've got nothing on Bodmer. 60,000 volumes. Man, I don't even think I could fit 60,000 volumes in my whole office. So uh, just cut me a break with the books, please. Anyhow, Bodmer... Uh, purchased some papyri from a dealer in, the, in Egypt in the 1950s and the 60s that were found in the Dishna Plain east of the Nile River at a place called Jabal Abu Mana. Say that 10 times fast. Jabal Abu Mana in 1952, just seven and a half miles from where the Nag Hammadi manuscripts were found. Now, some of you might have heard of the Nag Hammadi manuscripts. This place that Bodmer ended up buying these papyri from was only seven and a half miles away from Nag Hammadi, which is another famous place that manuscripts were found. So the story goes like this. 
Hassan Muhammad al-Saman, a tall, dull peasant, and Muhammad Khalil al-Azuzi, an ignorant, one-eyed peasant, both from the hamlet of Abu Mana, also called Bahri, found a jar containing books about 300 meters out from the foot of the Jaba Abu Mana at the corner of the cliff. This is quoting from James Robinson's book. Hassan found the jar buried a couple of meters deep when he was digging sabak to fertilize the fields. He called over to Muhammad al-Azuzi to see what the poor find. Then Hassan broke the jar with his mattock and left the pieces where they lay. Then he pulled out the books from the jar and put them in the skirt of his jalabiya. Some that were torn and in very bad condition were burned on the spot. The discovery may be dated with some confidence late in 1952. And if you want to read the whole story of how after those scrolls were discovered, there was controversy and how eventually they ended up getting sold, you're going to have to buy James Robinson's book, The Story of the Bodmer Papyri. This is just how stuff gets found. You know, if you lived in Egypt and you were digging for fertilizer, who knows, you might find some ancient treasure too, right? Uh, this is not something as an American... I can relate to. I mean, the most I could find in my backyard digging around uh, maybe would be like an arrowhead, which is like totally lame compared to you know, scriptures that are uh, buried underground. But uh, this is the sort of thing that happens. So the Bodmer Library of World Literature, as it was later called, ended up moving to uh, Geneva. Geneva is a beautiful lake in Switzerland. These are where the Bodmer collection now resides. Here's a picture of P66, John chapter 8. The writing is clear as day. It's just incredible. This thing is centuries and centuries and centuries old, and you can just read it like it was written yesterday. Bodmer also purchased P72, which is the oldest copy of 1st and 2nd Peter, and also has the book of Jude. And also P75, which is one of our most important manuscripts again, which is the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of John, and it's the earliest copy of the Gospel of Luke. These are not mere fragments, as we saw with some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, some of them no bigger than a postage stamp or a fingernail. These, these are like multiple page documents, and some of them are feet long, uh, but it doesn't compare to the next discovery that was made, and that is the discovery of Oxyrhynchus. Oxyrhynchus, guess what? It's also in Egypt about 100 miles south of Cairo, 10 miles west of the Nile River, on the bank of a canal called Bar Yusuf. And Oxyrhynchus is actually the name of a fish. It's the, it means a, the city of the sharp-nosed fish. Uh, so there's a particular fish this city was named after, and I guess the name stuck. But Oxyrhynchus was a bustling metropolis from the time of Christ until about the seventh century. And at times it had as many as 30,000 inhabitants, which is a lot for an ancient city. The main players here were Bernard Grenfell and Arthur Hunt, both of whom were born in the, uh, either 1870 or 1871. Grenfell was out on a dig in Egypt in 1893, 1894, 1895 on other people's digs. And uh, then he picked this site. He picked Oxyrhynchus. And Grenfell's like, I, I want us to dig here at this place. And when you get to the site, there's like nothing there. 
and uh, he's, he thinks this would be a really good place to dig. And here, in his own words, is why he thought that was so. Being the capital of the Nome, another word for province, it must have been the abode of many rich persons who could afford to possess a library of literary texts. Neither town nor cemetery appeared to have been plundered for antiquities in recent times. Above all, Oxyrhynchus seemed to be a site where fragments of Christian literature might be expected of an earlier date than the 4th century, to which our oldest manuscripts of the New Testament belong. For the place was renowned in the 4th and 5th centuries on account of the number of its churches and monasteries and the rapid spread of Christianity about Oxyrhynchus. As soon as the new religion was officially recognized, implied that it had already taken a stronghold during the preceding centuries of persecution. So if you're curious, like, how do archaeologists figure out where to dig? This is how, this is how Grenfell figured out where one of the greatest archaeological finds, especially when it comes to New Testament, the greatest archaeological find to have ever been found so far, was based on literary references to this town as being a strong place for Christians, having been known as a place that really had lots of churches in the 4th and 5th century. So it's concluding, well, if it had a lot in the 4th and 5th century as soon as Christianity wasn't illegal anymore, then there were probably lots of Christians in the 3rd century, in the 2nd century. So that's why he started digging there. Now, he started digging there, but he didn't really find much at first. Uh, there was actually a third guy. So it was Grenfell Hunt and a third person named Flinders Petrie. And he dug with them for about three days. But then, since he didn't find anything, he just uh, moved on to another site. And I'm sure he has never gotten over that. Because uh, at first, Grenfell and Hunt were digging in cemeteries, and they found nothing for three weeks. But then they dug into a mound, just like a low mound on the ground, basically a garbage pile, and, or the ancient equivalent of a landfill. And immediately, they found two scraps of Greek manuscripts, one from the Gospel of Thomas, which is not part of our Bibles, but it's a Gnostic Gospel, and the other was from the Gospel of Matthew. They found massive quantities of papyri. I mean, it's, it's hard to even imagine a find this big could even exist. 500,000 documents, ancient documents they found. This is like the Cairo Geniza, right? I mean, this is the Christian version of the Cairo Geniza, except it's not a synagogue where everything's kept. This is just like a pile of garbage outside the city. So it's not as um, predictable, maybe, as what you find in the uh, synagogue there. And there were some that were just as small as a postage stamp and others that were many feet in length. And it was just a huge, huge find, a, a windfall in scholarship. The literary texts include writings from Homer, Hesiod, Demosthenes, Euripides, Menander, Thucydides, Plato, and, most importantly for us, 53 New Testament manuscripts. Then you have the documentary texts, petitions, contracts, receipts, letters, wills, warrants, official proceedings, registers, lists, invitations, leases, charms, loans, certificates, declarations, and many Christian texts there as well. Now, I want to show you this book that I have, which, if you're interested in this find in particular, will be really helpful for you if you want to research it further. This book is called Christian Oxyrhynchus, and it contains all of the documents from the earliest, which would be 2nd century, up until the 4th century. So that 200-year span, and what they'll have in here is they'll have a Greek original, and then they'll have an English translation. And for each document, they'll give a little introduction for it as well. And there, there's hundreds of these documents. You know, 53 of them are New Testament, but then there's lots of other things as well. 
that uh, scholars are interested in in understanding the history of Christianity. So take a look at that if you're interested. We can read from this book, it says, some of the very earliest Christian artifacts we currently possess come from Oxyrhynchus. Additionally, to further highlight the importance of Oxyrhynchus New Testament papyri, of the 127 New Testament papyri currently published, 53, or 42%, come from Oxyrhynchus. As one moves from the 2nd to 3rd century, then to the 4th century, the papyrological evidence for Christianity expands. As one proceeds into the 5th century, and especially into the 6th and 7th centuries, just about every document is overlaid with a Christian veneer. For example, the sale of a part of a house at Oxyrhynchus in the year 644 or 645 reveals this very phenomenon as it begins by referring to Oxyrhynchus as, quote, the illustrious and Christ-loving city. That's from Lincoln Blumel and Thomas Wayment in the Christian Oxyrhynchus book. Uh, these discoveries led to a revolution in understanding New Testament Greek. I mean, I'm really not overstating this here, people. This is absolutely huge. This is, this is on par with the Dead Sea Scrolls for the Hebrew Bible, Oxyrhynchus for the Greek Bible, for the New Testament. We find uh, P1, which has Matthew 1. P5 has John chapter 1 and John chapter 16. You can see most of these are fragmentary. Most of these are just a chapter or a few verses, but nonetheless, they're significant. Then we have, uh, so that was P1 and, and P5. Then you have P13, which he, with had some Hebrews. P22 has John 15 and 16. P77 has Matthew 23. P90 has John 18. P104 has Matthew 21. P115 has Revelation 3.12. This is actually a picture of P115 right here. And uh, I'm, you probably can't read this too well, but this right here is the Greek... Uh, you know, you're familiar with Roman numerals? These are like the Greek numeral equivalent of 616. Uh, most of our manuscripts for Revelation uh, talk about the number of the beast as being 666. This manuscript says 616. Some people have made a big deal about that. An amazing body of Greek papyri has been unearthed in Egypt since the 1870s. Private letters, official reports, wills, business accounts, petitions, and other such trivial everyday recordings of the activities of human beings. In 1895 appeared the first of Adolf Deisman's studies of these ordinary materials. He proved that many words which had hitherto been assumed to belong to what was called quote-unquote biblical Greek were current in the spoken vernacular of the first century AD. The New Testament was written in the Koine, the common Greek which was spoken and understood practically everywhere throughout the Roman Empire in the early centuries of the Christian era. This development in the study of the New Testament Greek sheds new light upon the meaning of the Greek text. The Greek in our New Testament is not some special genre of Greek, biblical Greek. No, this is the same Greek that everybody spoke. And that makes perfect sense if, the, especially the Gospels, for example, are evangelistically minded. So moving on then to our last category for today of manuscripts, which is P52. Bernard Grenfell acquired this in Egypt in 1920. Fifteen years later, a man named Colin Roberts was sorting through unpublished papyri at the John Rylands Library at Manchester in England and recognized this little fragment. It's about the size of a credit card, just a couple of inches, and on the front it has John 18, 31 to 33, and on the back, John 18, 37 to 38. And what's crazy about this little scrap of paper is that it contains the earliest piece of the New Testament on planet Earth. 
that we've yet discovered. From the year 125 AD, many scholars believe the Gospel of John was written in the 90s. So like this little piece of paper comes within like 35 years, give or take, of the writing of the original Gospel. I mean, you just never get anything like this when it comes to ancient manuscripts. You know, there's always a century or more of a gap. 35 years is just, it's just unheard of. Here's what Bruce Metzger said about this discovery. Although the extent of the verses preserved is so slight, in one respect, this tiny scrap of papyrus possesses quite as much evidential value as would the complete codex. Just as Robinson Crusoe, seeing but a single footprint in the sand, concluded that another human being with two feet was present on the island with him, so P52 proves the existence and the use of the fourth gospel during the first half of the second century in a provincial town along the Nile far removed from its traditional place of composition, Ephesus in Asia Minor. Had this little fragment been known during the middle of the past century, which for him was the 19th century, that school of New Testament criticism which was inspired by the brilliant Tübingen professor Ferdinand Christian Bauer could not have argued that the fourth gospel was not composed until about the year 160. There were Christian scholars, notably the Tübingen school, who were proposing a very late date for the Gospel of John, saying the Gospel of John wasn't written until a hundred years later. This little fragment has thoroughly disproved that possibility because we have a piece of the Gospel of John from the year 125, so it could not have been written in 160. It had to be written before uh, 125, which is... Uh, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Each of these are maybe a chapter from the Bible, some of them maybe a whole book of the Bible, but none of them a complete New Testament, not even close. And you can see, you know, all this different evidence that we have, this is all from the second century. I mean, this is just as good as it gets when it comes to historical uh, evidence and manuscripts. But earlier, it's not necessarily better because you you're also need to be concerned about the quality of the manuscripts. Some scribes are just going to scribble things out and other scribes are professional and they're going to take their time and they're going to draw their letters very carefully. So as it turns out there's four types of scribes and I thought this would be a good time to cover this with you. First you had the common scribe which is a semi-literate writer who produces inelegant cursive. Then you have the documentary scribe who is a literate writer experienced in preparing documents. Then you have the reformed documentary scribe, a literate writer experienced in preparing documents and in copying works of literature. Then last of all, we have the professional scribe, who is a professional writer who employs telltale marks of professionalism, like little markings tallying the number of lines. These are the different kinds of scribes. If you want to learn more about these scribes and the papyri in general, I highly recommend this volume but only if you have a working knowledge of Greek. If you don't have a working knowledge of Greek, this is not going to do much for you. But this is Philip Comfort and David Barrett's two-volume work called The Text of the Earliest New Testament Greek Manuscripts, uh, where they give you, in this volume, papyri 1 through 72, and in this one, 75 to 139. And inside, there's just a Greek transcription of the uh, papyrus. A lot of times, they'll give you a picture of what the papyrus looks like. They can't do that for every single one of them, but they do it for a lot of them, and you can, you can work your way through if you, if you can read Greek. If you can't read Greek, it's not gonna do you much good, uh, but he, this is where I'm pulling on for the source of these different papyri and these different scribe uh, characteristics 
Philip Comfort is kind of an expert on this subject, as well as Bruce Metzger. I should mention that book, too. Uh, this is in all English, and I will be depending on this a lot for uh, subsequent lectures on Greek manuscripts. This is called The Text of the New Testament by Bruce Metzger and Bart Ehrman. I think this was Bart Ehrman before he was an atheist. He was working with Metzger on this. Um, a lot of Ehrman's later stuff is very antagonistic towards Christianity, so keep that in mind. Now, let's talk about the most reliable papyri, just as a way of concluding, rounding out this, this topic of the earliest New Testament manuscripts. This is a quote from Comfort. He writes, One of the ways of establishing reliability, or lack thereof, is to test a manuscript against one that is generally proven for its textual fidelity. For example, since many scholars have acclaimed the textual fidelity of P46, now I already mentioned to you P46, but he's saying here P46 is solid, it's legit, scholars recognize P46 is accurate, based on internal and external reasons. He says, it is fair to compare other manuscripts against it in order to determine their textual reliability. The most reliable texts are P1, and then the second one here is, uh, is interesting. It's P4, P64, and P67. These are three separate papyri that later on they discovered actually are one document. So uh, it's, it's one document, but it has three names. Then you have P23, P27, P30, 32, 35, 39, 49, and 65 are also one. Then you have 70, 75, 86, 87, 90, 91, 100, 101, 104, 106, 108, 111, 114, and 115. These manuscripts produced with a cumin display a standard of excellence. The scribe's motivation for accuracy could have come from their respect for the sacredness of the text or from their scribal training, or both. In any event, they produced reliable copies that largely preserve the original wording of the New Testament writings. It is to these manuscripts that we look for the preservation of the original wording of the various writings of the New Testament. I think it's just so fascinating. I've been uh, looking at this stuff and reading them and trying to really wrap my mind around you know, the earliest parts of the New Testament. Um, next time we're going to look at these larger manuscripts that were written on parchments in our continuing quest to understand how we got the Bible. All right, that's it for this one. What'd you think? Uh, please come online and, and let us know at restitutio.org. Look for episode 335, Greek New Testament Papyri, and ask your question. Make your comment. We'd love to hear from you. Also, on the show notes for this episode, I have a number of books listed. Uh, one of them has all of the transcribed papyri. About half or so of them are in the two volumes I mentioned by Philip Comfort and David Barrett. And then also I put the link for the Christian Oxyrhynchus source book, where the, the, they give you all the, not just the New Testament papyri, but also all the other papyri relating to Christianity from the first couple of centuries. A, a great primary source volume that you can use for all kinds of research projects, especially those of you out there who are interested in anti-Nicene Christianity. Uh, what were Christians down in Oxyrhynchus thinking and doing in the second century, in the third century? And then as things heated up with the Christological debates of the fourth century in northern Egypt, what were Christians in the south thinking about that. I mean, Oxyrhynchus is, is well over 100 miles from Alexandria. So 
really an interesting window into thought and life in that period at that place. So check that out if you're interested. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you could do that online at restitutio.org. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.